Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens. My Time Capsule is a podcast where people tell me five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule. They can pick anything they like, but they pick four things that they cherish and one thing that they'd like to bury and forget. My special guest in this episode is the comedian Ed Patrick. Ed is, as I said, a comedian. He's also an author and an NHS anaesthetist. He's performed across the UK, including at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Ed hosts the Comedian's Surgery podcast, where he speaks to guests including Joe Lysett, Rose Matafeo, and Reginald D. Hunter about their health stories and experiences. He also created and presented Infectious Personalities with Hattrick Productions, broadcast on BBC Radio 2, with the guests Charlie Brooker and Sindhu V. Ed has written and performed on BBC Radio 4 for shows such as Now Wash Your Hands and Newsjack, and he's also written for The Guardian about the intersection between medicine and comedy. He wrote a book about his experiences in the world of comedy and the NHS, particularly during COVID, called Catch Your Breath, The Secret Life of a Sleepless Anaesthetist which is available now from all good and even some bad booksellers. And this spring, he will be touring his show, also called Catch Your Breath, around the country, finishing at London's Comedy Store on May the 6th. Book your tickets now, or maybe book them after you've listened to this podcast, where we find out what Ed Patrick would most want in his time capsule, and the one thing he'd want to put in there and keep buried forever. Hello, Ed. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. Here I am. I've only been here for a minute. Okay. You know that thing where they do on Zoom where they say you can put them in a waiting room? Yes. I think that would be like being a doctor. No, yeah. 
I had to do an anaesthetics exam a couple of years ago and they put you in waiting rooms and it was just one of the most painful sorts. You just sat there twiddling your thumbs, wondering what on earth you'd said to the previous one and then now waiting for the next one. It was a nightmare. Um, This morning, all morning, I've been thinking about a little thing I read on your website. Yeah. When you said, uh, I'm an anaesthetist, or as the Americans call it, anaesthesiologist. Yes, that's right, yeah. I think it has a different meaning now as well. Right. Uh, Slightly different meaning. Oh, no, maybe it doesn't. Um, They've got anaesthetists. These yeah, nurses there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot. There's lots of political toing and froing at the moment about associates and things like that. And then right. so basically, the deal is when you see someone, you won't be able to work out if they're a doctor or not. You just need to ask them directly and just say, "Are you a doctor?" And well, you know, <laughs> sort of, sort of I'm, thing. Sort of, so, <laughs> more of a decorator than a yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, you're right. There, there is a lot of Americanisms. They like to call their own sort of thing. Uh, yes, I was in America, and they reported about a place being burglarized which I thought was uh, a, a nice extension of a word. What, it's as in, a, in like, thieved sort of yeah, thing? Yeah, burgled. I've just, I've just made up a word, thieved. <laughs> <laughs> Thievization, obviously, yes. <laughs> but then again, you come from the world of medicine. I know, there's lots, I mean, there's loads of words that I still don't even know or understand in medicine. So, in fact, my mum bought me once uh, <laughs> a book on sort of, it's like a dictionary of doctor's words. And so, so I read through some of them, and obviously some of the Latin mm. I really recognise, but there's absolutely hundreds I've never heard of or since because you just don't have the time you go into a certain field and then you don't, you know, I'm not going down the sort of depths of dermatology or anything now. And you, you know, so you like all this. Just ignore that. <laughs> I know nothing about skin. Keep away from me. I'm delighted to talk to you, I have to say, because uh, I've been involved with the NHS in, you know, not just in the sense of being a taxpayer. So we're all involved with it, really. But I've been involved with it in the fact I sponsor a team that protests against the constant government fiction that is put out about the NHS, about it being everybody else's fault apart from theirs. I recently went to A&E and uh, was seen within about, about half an hour by a nurse and then another half an hour seen by a junior doctor. And I said to the doctor, sorry, aren't you on strike today? And he said, yeah, I am. Yeah. And it turned out the whole hospital was completely staffed and every doctor who worked there had come in on that day, even though the junior and senior doctors were on strike. They were all in there. And I said, what are you doing here? They said, we're doing admin. Oh, right. <laughs> They'd come in to clear the paperwork. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I mean, I support the strikes and the BMA, the way they're doing it, because I just think that the government need to listen to them, basically. It's sort of depressing when you realise how much you're getting paid and then sort of subsequent jobs in other sectors sort of thing and, the you know, the sort of value they're putting on it. Mm. And yet, you know, they don't want to do anything about it. Yet they'll throw millions and billions at Rwanda or dodgy, you know, look at all the PPE stuff and things like that. So yeah. they could easily... Oh, uh, don't. That's yeah, exactly. Maddening, and, so, and all the BMA are asking for is full pay restoration from what it was in 2008. That's all it is. You look at MPs' salaries and how much they've gone up as well. So yes, quite. So yeah, but I'm surprised because the amount it costs the government with these strikes, they could probably have saved it all by just agreeing a decent pay package, basically. Initially, indeed. I mean, back to the Rwanda thing, they'll throw millions and millions and millions at lawyers and things like that. Just to, and it's not going to ever be a mm-hmm. policy that's going to be workable. We're never going to have sort of an express plane that's taking people across there. It's Clearly. Just, they think it's effective as far as their voters are concerned, which is why they're doing it. But it won't have any effect on immigration, I don't think, at all. No, no, not at all. No, it's it's it's, it's nasty, really, more than anything else. It just, I don't know, it's one of those depressing things going on, is it, where you just think, where's the humanity and everything? Yeah, quite. Well, I mean, I can't imagine that anybody goes into the health service without fundamentally a desire to help people. 
Yeah, well, in our country, certainly. I mean, you don't go into the NHS for money. Mm. You know, if you want to make lots of money, then there's plenty of other places that um, you, you could do that. Obviously, in, you know, different countries where it's, you know, sort of a, a private sector-led thing like in America, then money is a thing that... But then yeah. also coming on top of that is all the insurance and all that side of things too. So, so yeah, the NHS is great to work for in terms of, you know, you want to go into it because that is something that you want to do. It does. And I think that's what the government has sort of found difficult as well when they thought they'll squeeze it and squeeze it and then doctors and will be tempted by all these different things and, you know, this whole collapse the NHS system. That isn't why people got into the NHS. So No, I think it's highly admirable. And uh, I just wait for an election, I think, maybe... Maybe. I think that's it. No, I, that's what I, I think is. Um, I think we just need a sea change of everything. I'm mm-hmm. not saying that the next government that come in, come in is going to be the right one. It's just that I think it's so stagnated in in the ways of what it's been, and we've gone through several health secretaries. And I mean, I'm pretty sure lots of other sectors could say the same thing. The problem is, if you say it enough times, there's no backing down. If you say we're not going to give in, this yeah. is it. This is the final offer. You're trapped. You can't negotiate. Yeah. And that's the mistake they've made, I think. Yeah, well, that's it. The BMA have really stood firmly by what they believe in and really have got the support of the majority of all the doctors, basically. So it's just costing the the government more and more by them not doing it. But I don't know whether it's a political decision, do you know what I mean? Like, what, what are they sending out? Because in my mind, I'm like, well, if you look like you're supporting the doctors and then suddenly everyone's happier in the NHS and things, then it's good for an election. Mm. But maybe politically that isn't what they want to be seen to be doing. I don't know. Well, I think they think giving into any union is a weakness. It's seen by their voters as such anyway. I really can't understand why they're so dogged about the NHS, apart from it being an ideological thing that they fundamentally, despite everything they say, would rather the whole thing just went away and they were allowed to bring in American companies and make money out of it. Well, I do think that's part of it, is just sort of trying to siphon in. Because there is pockets of it that is kind of privatised and all... And it's never any better. If anything, it makes it, it makes it just more kind of complicated and convoluted. And yeah. they talk about bringing in all the technology and, oh, we're going to have all this AI and things. You know, it takes you 12 minutes to log on to a computer at the moment, you know, and mm-hmm. we're still using bleeps. And there's lots of basic infrastructure. The buildings, oh, my goodness, the buildings. Yeah. What, <laughs> you know, if it was Grand Designs, they would tell you to give up straight away. You know, it's that kind of... You'll never fix that. Yeah, I mean, because I'm currently going through house building renovation, and so I'm, I'm looking around more at sort of infrastructure, and um, you're just like, this is a hospital. <laughs> like, you know, it's just... Um, the problem is getting trapped in PFIs as well. You know, this whole private finance initiative where mm-hmm. companies build the, the hospitals and then rent them out and things like that. And then yeah. any alterations you want doing on them cost, you know, thousands and thousands. There's all these... What happens is you'll hear a different story about things that are sort of undermining things in the NHS and it almost is exhausting to hear it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's almost... <laughs> bet, it's, almost yeah. it's like not another thing that's kind of big. Side. <sighs> but the thing, realistically, with such a large organisation, you're always going to have a few rotten corners of it aren't you and uh it's trying to make it as good as possible um yeah it's lots of things i mean you look at you know management as well and the sort of salaries they're on and then you know if something goes wrong it's never that management's fault they'll you know move mm-hmm. on to another job or you know another part of the nhs and i don't you know management isn't as accountable as being in medicine you know obviously we've got regulatory bodies and things but yeah. You know, it's just like in, the, I guess, in the corporate world, you know, people can just 
leave and go somewhere else. Yeah, and, yeah. You know. So, in fact, obviously, then the thing to do is decide, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a book and I'm going to become a stand-up comedian. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah. And then I'll make my fortune. Exactly. That'll be yeah. it. Yeah. But what inspired you to write the book? Um, I think what happened was, well, I know what happened. What happens is you do medical school, then you do a couple of years doing your foundation years, so your first few years as a doctor. And then there's a natural break after that period where some people take a bit of time off to go and work abroad or they mm -hmm. explore different career options. The system was designed, I think, to get people into training paths quicker. But I think it's such a grueling first couple of years that people want to take a break and, you know, explore different things like work abroad, like I said. So mm -hmm. at that pit time, comedy had started taking off. So I took some time off to focus more on that, as well as still working clinically and doing some teaching and things. And then I thought about doing anaesthetics always thought it would be something that would suit me personality wise but I was always scared of the idea of it as well <laughs> a bit like comedy I used to I used to love going watching comedy when I was younger my brother used to sneak me into a club in Nottingham just the tonic and uh, I you know I was fascinated love watching it and the idea of doing it was just terrifying the same with anesthetics mm -hmm. as well I was, oh my goodness you know it's the opposite of what you do you know if you went to your GP and they made you unconscious and paralyzed you that that's generally <laughs> quite a problem but you know, is, that's that's the now the day job sort of thing. So it was just the polar opposite of what you learn. And one of my friends who was an ethicist said to me that don't worry about everything you feel like you don't know. It's almost like starting medicine again when you do anaesthetics because you do come from a different viewpoint. And it was like that. So I started anaesthetics and everything every single day was fascinating, but only because it was new to me. And I was acutely aware that the moment I got used to this, it's less fascinating. So I wrote down right. notes every day of things I was doing. And I thought this will be interesting for a book at some point. So I wrote down notes every day. And then obviously we went into what happened with all the pandemic. And it brought into focus what anaesthetics and anaesthetists do and are because they, you know, we were manning all the intensive cares, which, you know, historically it was all intensive care was all manned by anaesthetists but we were all taken back there. So I think it just brought everything into focus, plus the fact that all my live work, all the other work I was doing had stopped whilst all that was going on. So my real outlet creatively was just writing. So that's mm. how it all came together, is that I got all the notes I had written from before, plus everything that was going on now, and then I was just able to sort of focus it into, into the book from then. Wow. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Well, you obviously have got used to it, but the idea that in order when somebody is critically ill that you basically take all the strain off them by bringing them right back to the basic thing of just keep that heart beating and keep them breathing. Or in fact, if you don't need that, we'll assist you with breathing, but just make sure that you go back to really almost a simple being. Everything else stops. And you're doing that with medicine. You're giving them drugs to stop their brain panicking, stop all those things happening. Yeah, well, medicine or poison, depending on how you look at it. Well, yeah. I mean, this was one of the things I was, I was really fascinated with and I mentioned in the book too, was the one of the drugs we use is muscle relaxants and anaesthetics. So these are the paralyzing drugs, which are based on the plant poison curare. And it was discovered <laughs> by someone, because they were used by indigenous tribes, probably still are for, to hunting animals. So they mm. would paralyze animals and stop them breathing. And back in that time, the surgeons were struggling to do their surgery because patients were moving around. But if you give someone too much anaesthetic, then you're at risk of uh, causing them harm then as well. So the muscle relaxants came in to sort of aid surgery um, mm. in certain areas. And it just fascinates me that we've developed it from an arrow poison, essentially. So. <laughs>
It's extraordinary, isn't it? Mm. Just last night, I was watching David Attenborough talking about a frog. They've discovered a chemical on the skin of this frog that is 50 times more effective at painkilling than morphine. Oh, wow. I've not heard of that. It was one of those, um, are they an arrow frog? I think it may be one of those. They've got poison on their skin that puts animals off from eating them. But it also, sadly, talked about hundreds and hundreds of frogs going into extinction every year. Because we're, we're now taking them for the pain relief, is that why? <laughs> Probably, almost certainly, we're, we're sucking on their backs. Lick a frog, that's the idea. That's the next level of street dealing, isn't it? It's the amphibians just being marketed on the street. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. I don't know. Anyway, so Catch Your Breath. Did you give it that title because you felt like you needed to? I was thinking of a title for the book and there was nothing obvious at the time. And we were going through the last couple of years and I was just thinking what's going to encapsulate both anaesthetics and also what was going on. Because the book, some people have described as being almost like in two halves. Mm. And it's actually quite difficult when you're trying to think something. I find that it's always the spur of the moment things. And I remember it, I was I was in Devon with my other half and well, I was just coming down the stairs and I was probably about four steps down and I just said, oh, catch your breath, maybe that's the one. Because I always thought something to do with breath because... Essentially, that's, you know, the number one thing that anaesthetists do is looking after people Mm. who can breathe. But at the same time, it was referring to us as well as the practitioners. Yeah. It had a reflection on how we were feeling too. So it nicely put that in perspective, I felt. Mm. So is the tour going to be a re-look at that book from a stand-up point of view? Well, interestingly, no. Ah. (laughs) So so the, the tour is different to the book. The title for the tour, I have borrowed from the book, but I thought it was I thought it was nice in terms of marketing as well. So people yes. obviously know from, from me. But the, the actual... And at the end of the show, you can say, now, none of the stuff I've done today is in my book, but it's available at the back of the theatre. <laughs> it does. It, I do touch on the book. It does come in. But there is another really, I would say, one, one of the most important stories um, I've been involved with that holds that show together. And it was just something I explore in the show. And so it's a, it's a really important message I, I want to get out. And so when I first told this story, um, you get kind of nervous when you're telling a, a story for the first time. But <laughs> the reaction to people was just fascinating, especially afterwards as well. And I took a work in progress up of 2022. And then this year I brought it up as a full show for a couple of weeks at the stand and it was just a brilliant, brilliant run. It will lean from the book. Uh, there will be parts of it. But if you've got the book, there's more for you in the show as well. So it's best <laughs> of both worlds, isn't it, if you think about it? Well, very exciting times. But um, I, I don't know if any of that's going to come up when we talk to you about the things you've chosen to put into a time capsule. But uh, it'll be interesting to find out. We'll see where it goes. So have you chosen some things for me? I have, yes. So the first one, mm-hmm. and I feel this is... when I thought about the things that I would put in a time capsule, this popped into my head and I was like, oh, it's so obvious, but it's obvious for a reason. And I'm sure there's lots of other people that talk about similar items or things or persons, but one of our dogs is called Nelly. She would definitely be in the time capsule. So I met Nelly the first time I met my wife. And I feel that there was a real important connection between me and Nelly, they basically got the confirmation. <laughs> you thought, I like that dog so much, I think I'll go out with this girl. Well, I think it was the other way around. I think the dog ah. liked me so much that mm. I was uh, accepted. <laughs> basically. Right. But I've always been a dog person. I think I've really wanted a dog, but we've never been a family that had one. My mum would never want a, a dog in the house. So she, one of her best friends 
has a dog and it was only allowed in the kitchen, nowhere else in the house. Uh-huh. We had a pet when I was younger, a cat. And when I was one, I think I got the cat. But apparently I chose the name for the cat when I was one years old. And do you know what I chose for the name? Pooh. Polly Perkins. Now I That's good. I, I don't think that came out of a one year old's mouth, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes, maybe not. So we had Perco, as we called it, um, for like 17 years. <laughs> and again, see, Perco wasn't allowed in the rest of the house, apart from the kitchen. And just where this little conservatory sit a bit outside as well, just in those areas. Wow, you had control over a cat. Well, I mean, the cat had the whole outside world and a little bit of the indoor world. And then at Christmas, she was allowed up for because I'd always get a box of chocolates or something from Perco, basically, which is, <laughs> yes. was always amazing. <laughs> but I've always loved dogs. I think my dad has as well. And he, mm. I'm not sure he actually had dogs when he was younger, but he was always around dogs and things like that. But my mum was just staunchly against dogs anywhere in the house. So when I met Joe with Nelly, Joe came over to my parents' house for the first time. And of course she had Nelly, which Nelly was like just one. So she would normally go everywhere. And there was an acceptance that Nelly was allowed to come, not just come, not just be in the kitchen, but allowed <laughs> in the lounge. And I was like, wow. oh my goodness, yeah. So so <laughs> come in. And then we've got this rug on the floor as well. Mum and dad had this rug, you know, one of these sort of round, expensive ones that you get once in a lifetime sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So Nelly like comes in and then she just starts going wild on this rug. So like head on the rug <laughs> and then just starts scraping all around it. So <laughs> we're sort of, me and Joe sort of apologising for <laughs> Nelly, but... My mum's eyes just lit up as soon as she met Nelly. She's a brown cockapoo and mm. she's so, she, she can turn it on. Look, my dad absolutely loved her <laughs> straight away. My mum <laughs> loved her as well. But now what's happened is from that first meeting, my family, from that, my mum and dad now allow Nelly all over the house. So that was the first thing. So we've gone from nowhere allowed in the house to suddenly allowed on my mum's bed. <laughs> You know, <laughs> you weren't even allowed on her bed. Well, no, Nelly would just run up and jump onto mum. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, but mum's absolutely fine with it. <laughs> Add to that, my brother then got a dog as well. Right. So my brother, who's staunchly against it, so now he has a little dog too. <laughs> and then the other thing is that now my brother's going away and doesn't have anywhere to look after the dog. My mum and dad are now going to be looking after the dog. So we've gone full circle from absolutely staunch no dog. And this was all from Nelly who introduced my family to a world of dogs that could be nice and not, you know. <laughs> it's a good job you and Joe got on. I know. So it, it just completely changed the dynamic of the Patrick family in that sense. So we completely now accept dogs. Uh, we've also just got another dog a couple of weeks ago as well, Fig, a little Cocker Spaniel. She's just uh, 11 weeks old now as well. <laughs> it's just completely changed. And it's just fascinating to look back and think, wow, we really weren't a dog house at all. And now we are all over it. I mean, hats off to Joe for bringing up Nelly the way she was. So, yeah, so I th- that would be the first thing I'd want to... Obviously, I don't want to bury Nelly now. That would be traumatic. No, no, but... obviously not. No. <laughs> okay, all right, Ed, that's the first thing. So what's number two? So number two links into medicine. Because I was thinking about this, and, and there's a lot of moments, I think, you'd want to put in a time capsule. And it's mm. almost moments that... It's difficult to explain or see, but the moment I put in for me would be the first day of medical school, probably a little bit like halfway through the day, because there's this wonderful feeling of achievement when you get into something like medical school. You know, it's it's a vocation. You know what Mm. you're going to be doing for the next few years. And I think when you're that age, 
it's such a valuable thing to have because it's such a flux environment, you know, sort of going through late teenagerhood to sort of 20s and, and things. And I went through that period of like not knowing what I was going to do and uh, what, what focus was. So to have that sort of period of focus of five years where you knew you were going to do medical, it was, it was great. But also there was nothing else you had to think about or worry about. It was the first day. You weren't expected to be a doctor then. You, you, mm. were, you were in the process. And what a lovely thing to be part of that experience, to know that the world's a kind of oyster ahead of you and there's so much to learn. But there's, you know, you can just enjoy that moment because from that moment onwards, it's <laughs> a completely different set of scenario of worrying about almost everything where yeah. you're constantly trying to churn information into you, trying to learn everything that you possibly can. Then obviously get into the world of jobs and then what you need to worry about with those. So that first moment of medical school where you can really sort of sit back and think of all the things like all oh, learning anatomy or learning the physiology of things. It was such a beautiful moment to have that. And, and re- like I said, a real sense of achievement because getting into medical school was always a tough thing. Yeah, absolutely. Did you go straight from school? I didn't go straight from school, no. So I did another degree beforehand. But that helps, doesn't it? I mean, it's very difficult to go straight from school to medical school. I'm not sure is a right decision. Well, yeah. In America, they do obviously a degree and then go into medical school as a postgrad. Mm. Both the options are open. You can go yeah. as a graduate. There's less places as a graduate. Is that why you only did five years? So it's five years undergrad and then two right. years on a uh, on, on your foundation training. But so, so five okay. m- medical school will be four or five years. Mm. If you do a straight postgraduate course, which is just postgraduates, it's a four-year intensive course. I went to Aberdeen, which is an undergraduate university, and so that's five years. At that age, it must seem like an eternity almost. I mean, I remember going to university and thinking, three years, three years I'm going to be here. This is extraordinary. So the idea of thinking five years of study in this place before I actually go out and start doing practice, as it were, that must have seemed like, well, when I'm an old man. Yeah, you already feel like an old man when you're a graduate anyway. So So you sort of appreciate appreciate the time. But it was almost like the stability of knowing that you had something to look forward to in progression. So it was a really valuable moment that first day. But yeah, going through it, suddenly the stakes are raised every single year. Everything you're doing in medical school now suddenly has an impact on the job you're going to get, where you're going to get it. And you have no real say or control where you're going to get that job, you know. Mm. So lots of factors then started playing in. Yeah, and you're surrounded by incredibly intelligent people. Yeah. But to get into medical school, you have to be bright or you have to be astonishingly studious. But generally, I think people have a natural intelligence for taking in information and uh, and assimilating it. And that's quite daunting, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's you are surrounded by a lot of uh, you know talented people and and that's that's the thing we go back to at the moment, you know, it's a lot of work. You have to obviously fund yourself through medical school. You've got exams to do, tough exams. You finish medical school and that's not the end of it. You know, you then have to do other exams on your specialty as well. So anaesthetics, you've got some of the hardest exams out of the whole medical world, which you then fund. You've got to pay for all these things. So this goes back to, you know, people, will they keep choosing it as a career with that amount Mm. of effort, with that amount of debt that you've got to put in, paying Mm -hmm. for all these things? Because you want to attract the best people um, you can get into medicine. Um, so, yeah, it's... it's um, and and I, what I'm trying to get across with that moment as well it is, you know, everyone can feel that moment. You know, it, we didn't know anything about medicine then. You know, we knew about sciences and we knew 
how to get into medical but in terms of actually practicing as a doctor you know mm. imagine you were told that it's it's literally you know really sort of feeling that anyone could have had because we all felt oh my goodness should I be here and stuff like that but yeah just just the moment to know that the pressure was off you know you were lucky enough to sort of be in medical school and just appreciate it without any of the consequences of knowing what you were gonna have to learn and stuff it was just <laughs> a moment just a moment to to savor and then uh, from everything then onwards it's just admin and <laughs> <laughs> taking notes yeah and, and trying to remember them yeah <laughs> terrifying but it's interesting that you, could, that you also described it as knowing that you had those next five years that there was a certainty to it yeah. uh, and it's odd well i suppose maybe it's a reaction to that that you've now moved into an area where there is no certainty at all so you've sort of gone well i'm going to do stand-up comedy yeah well <laughs> Yeah, I, I think, well, for me, um, I was always doing bits and bobs. Like I said, comedy was something from a really early age. But the thing about medicine is that it's so all-encompassing. And I think part of the problem is for working doctors, there's so much expected of you with little downtime. Mm. You know, a full-time working doctor is 48 hours a week. Yeah. Now, that gives you little time outside. And like anything in life, if you've got a, a job that's intense, what you need is the outside things to kind of help you recover and recuperate. Right. And for me, writing and comedy has been that. I did notice how much I missed comedy and performing uh, when we weren't able to do it. Mm. But it definitely has an impact. And, and I would say that, you know, for me, I wouldn't be able to do one without the other. Mm. So I wouldn't be able to do comedy without medicine. And it makes me a better doctor. Yeah. Definitely makes me a better doctor. And I noticed the times when I'm not doing shows or not uh, writing as much. It For me, it's a real sort of yin-yang of ha having both of them. It is brilliant because so many comedians I've spoken to say, my problem is what do I do when I'm not doing comedy? They so love doing comedy. They so enjoy it. And it, it can become an obsession that it's what do I do in my normal life? So yeah. you, you've got the perfect answer. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. It's stressful. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> and there's lots of things you've got to balance with it, but it certainly balances it out. And it's strange really to say that it makes me a better doctor, but it does just as well as it being a release. It, it just that there's natural skills and in comedy that really lend itself to medicine. So, mm. you know, that building rapport with patients, you know, working in high stakes sort of situations, uh, stressful environments you, you know it, yeah. it's something that does certainly add to it as well mm -hmm. and you know having a bit of comedy if you can lace it in there does always help a bit of release in in the nhs as well so yes so yeah it's, it just happens to balance it out for me Perfect. and the first couple of years when i was doing um because i came down from aberdeen and i was doing comedy at the same time but i never really told anyone about it in in hospital i never told anyone about it mm. and the reason was I had a show down south and I asked for a day off or something like that. And <laughs> I got called into an office. And I was like, oh, they're going to say, oh, well done you for carrying on with all your extracurricular activities and stuff. And I actually got pretty much told off for asking for such a thing. So I thought, oh my goodness, I can't possibly tell anyone this at all. No. And then, um, so I, I was doing this strange moonlighting thing where I was... <laughs> um, I would do like a gig and then a night shift and like no one tell any, don't tell anyone about it sort of thing in the hospital. <laughs> and then there was a consultant who was just looking over things I'd done and like, and a CV sort of thing and saw this, that I'd mentioned it on here. He said, oh, why don't I know anything about this? And I was like, oh, well, I thought it wouldn't be looked upon highly mm. and I'd be told off sort of thing. And he said, no, 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 you know, I play in a band, you know, if 
I'd much rather work with someone that does something else than someone that doesn't do anything else. And I think, to be honest, that is a modern thing. Yeah. I think in the olden days, you were expected to fully commit to that and nothing else um, and not even have a life outside. No. Well, I'm, I'm probably being extreme here. No, but I think it's that, true. That, that, I know doctors who said, you know, it's really difficult to have a family. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's headed more that way where they want people to... Sorry, I'm eating my glasses. Um, <laughs> we want people to be doing different things. It's a release, as I said, for me, but and it also keeps me doing medicine. And I think it's the same with other people as well, yeah. is that if you run people completely on empty, then at some point they're just going to leave or not be able to do the job. So I think they're now realising having people being able to be flexible, do different things. So... I do think that's been a, a big sea change. Yeah, well, it's a relief now that if you're on stage and you have to shout out, I'm sorry, is there a doctor in the house, apart from me? You're glad when somebody says yes, because up until that point, you were going, oh, God, don't tell anyone I'm here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think the whole idea of, of having a sense of humour and an ability to deal with people, it's always been one of the things people have complained about some doctors, that they don't seem to have that connection with people. They're fantastic at their job but they don't know how to communicate it. Yeah, they're called uh, surgeons. Ah, that's right, yeah. Okay, well, fantastic. I can't imagine anything better than having achieved such a thing as getting into medical school and then realising that actually it's okay. So let's put that in there. Absolutely. That's only number two. I know, only number two. So what's number three? Okay, time to leave Ed and move on to Ad. We'll be back when people stop trying to sell you things. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. That's the ads. Let's get back to Ed's time capsule. 
So number three is the Brunsfield Links golf course, the pitch and putt golf course in Edinburgh. If you ever go to Edinburgh, the Fringe, there is a pitch and putt, it's free to play, and it's like a 36-hole, I was say golf course, but it's like a pitch and putt, but 36 yeah. holes, basically, which is quite a lot. There's all these little white flags, mm-hmm. so it's just beyond the meadows in Edinburgh, and there's a place called the Golf Tavern, which you can go and, like, you know, rent a club from sort of thing, and you can go and play. So it's just, anyone can go and do it. And when I was at university first time uh, with a friend, I basically started playing there we were so bad right we were so bad but we were desperate to make it a competition and we would commentate on each other as well like whenever we were hitting a shot it'd be at the third tee here he comes oh he's dufting and it was just it was just a beautiful moment but what that started was a bonding of a friendship so that i'd never played the game before then and we now get together and it's part of our friendship. We go away, we go and watch like the British Open and stuff. Mm. And it all stems back to how terrible we were and still are <laughs> at the game of golf. And one of the most beautiful moments I've ever had is that we, you ever seen the trip with um, Steve Coogan and Rob Bryden? Yeah. So we were inspired by that because we love food and it was on when we were at uni and uh, we saw some of the places and we thought oh, it would be amazing to go to one of them. So we saved up and we planned and we went to Long Clume which is in Cartmel. Mm. And the deal was that it's... Obviously, these places are quite expensive to go to, but there was a deal on, and it was called the Romantic Package. (laughs) And if you got it, basically, you got the room, you got some dinner and stuff like that. And so we decided that that was the best thing to do, thinking that'd be fine. So we got to the room... (laughs) Of course, they, it was a romantic package. We booked it. So they just put Dear Mr. and Mrs. Lee, which didn't even use my surname. I was gutted about that. But what happened was that morning we played golf on our on a little trip and we were soaking wet and we came into that room. The package was they gave you a bottle of fizz as well. And we sat in our boxer shorts with a bottle of fizz between us and we watched golf on TV. And it was one of the greatest moments ever. And I remember Tom saying to me that, you know, he could actually marry me right now. And it was one of the mm. best moments we'd had, I think. So. <laughs> so we look back. So we always have those moments whenever we're going away. It all goes back to the pitch and putt. And it's so funny. It's like when you go to primary school and you, you're the, the place is massive. The school is huge. And then you go back later in life and it's such a small thing. Yes. And strangely, despite being you know, a fully grown adult, when I started hitting a golf ball, that place now seems so much smaller <laughs> well you played on full-size courses of course now. yeah exactly <laughs> so you suddenly think hang on a minute i really like a pitch and buck course there's a nine hole course near me and i used to play it with my son when he was just turned a teenager so it was perfect because he was beginning i'm rubbish and so we were about the same level now he's six foot two and can hit a ball 300 yards so i don't stand a chance it's envious, isn't it? Yeah. It's enviable. Well, it's a so. good job you, that you and Tom have, in a way, stayed at the same level. You've sort of grown together so that you now can still play each other competitively. Or do you just put him off by commentating? Um, uh, well, we, we still do a bit of the commentating as well. <laughs> We've got to be careful, though. Uh, but um, I think, so Dom Holland, you know Dom Holland? Mm-hmm. So I played golf with him a few times. And he put... <laughs> He put uh, in one of his blogs, which I think is possibly an accurate reflection, he described me as being, for someone whose job is to put needles in very specific places, (laughs) it's slightly unnerving that he can't put a golf ball in a hole from three feet away. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Don't tell your patients. You know, I can't believe how many people choose things from Edinburgh 
what a fantastic city it is. It's, it's got everything about it. You can get around it quite easy and it get every sort of corner you're seeing something quite magnificent too. And I, I lived there for a few years. Mm. So, I mean, I did, um, I used to be a rickshaw driver in Edinburgh as well. You know, really? the bicycles that take people around. Yeah. With those hills? Oh, my word. With those hills, yeah. So um, you'd look for the tips on those hills, I'll tell you. <laughs> I'm not surprised. What a city to make that work as well. So you'd always get people like on, you know, stag do's and they'll want a race. And uh, <laughs> you'd fake having a race. Always in the grass market. Oh, yeah. You'd fake having a race because if you'd properly had a race, you'd burn yourself out. And it wasn't worth it for the small winning fee that you'd get because you've got <laughs> another six hours to keep going, basically. Yeah. So, yeah, so I saw, saw all parts of Edinburgh with that too. And... Um, and yeah, I, I love going back there out with the festival too. I, I guess almost in a way, the festival changes it in your mindset because you've, you're so focused on doing your show and having things ready for that. It's Edinburgh, you don't probably get to fully appreciate it. In fact, I really love the fringe that I just did because I did go up for a limited amount of shows. Mm. You know, it's, it's an apocalyptic number of people visit that city, mm-hmm. but there's still space. In, in the right places, yeah. yeah. Amazing, yes. Uh, and this time you wouldn't have to cycle around it, which I think would be a great boon. Uh, I can't <laughs> imagine attempting some of those hills. Amazing. Okay, so we've got two left. We've got uh, one you want to keep and one you'd like to bury and forget. So it's up to you, whichever order you want to do it in. Oh, my goodness, I actually got too many. All right, okay. Um, what have you got? I actually got two more good ones. Well, I didn't tell me them both. You can I'll choose. I'll let you choose one, yeah. Okay. So... One of the ones I would definitely want to keep in a time capsule is a Fiddler gig. So Fiddler are a band. It's an acronym. Is that, is that a right word? Acronym? Yeah, yeah so it stands it is, yeah. for, you know, it's not the most savoury sort of thing. <laughs> so I don't know how sweary we're allowed to be on this podcast, You can swear but, if um, you want to. Well, it's, it's Fiddler. F-I-D-L-A-R. Let me guess what the first word is. Yes. Is it flip? It's not. It's not. <laughs> uh, but it's Effort Dog Life's a Risk, basically. They're a surf punk band from America and they are... So I remember listening to them when I was driving to a gig. I, it was when I was uh, years ago and I was listening to them on the radio and I was just suddenly entranced by it. And then I listened to the rest of the music and I then went to see them. And I've never had this before where I've gone to see a band live mm. and the music is a utterly different level to what it was recorded, like completely. Yeah. And I was just absolutely mesmerized. The crowd were amazing as well. It was just, you know, it's, it was such a raucous atmosphere, lots of mosh pits, sweaty, you know. You wear clothes that you never want to see again afterwards, basically. And you might have people fall over themselves and things, but everyone's sort of helping each other back up. And and it was just, it was great. So that was the first time I went to that was years ago. And I think I've seen them four times mm. since they, when they come back over here. And the most recent time was uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it was just the same. Yeah, It was just the same. And I was almost worried when I got there, would it be the same as it was before? Because this is the first time I've seen them since, you know, for years ago. Joe, my wife had bought me tickets and we went, and it was a very sort of muted atmosphere. Like, oh. there was someone in a barber jacket, and I was like, oh, my God, I've got old. I've become old. Oh, my goodness, what is going on? I cannot understand this. Anyway, so I was sort of in this moment of just reflecting on life and, you know, maybe, you know, things move on and change. And then what happened was everyone just started piling in literally minutes before they were gone. And I suddenly realised the reason was because I'd never actually been so early at a fiddler. <laughs> I got old because I turned up so early. You turned so up on early. time. <laughs> like three hours before they were on. Yes. And, that, and normally it just turn up and, and they're on. Need to get a decent seat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was just it was just absolutely brilliant. And like it was the first time Joe had seen and then they created a mosh pit in the middle and she just suddenly disappeared. So she was it was just 
It's such a great uh, experience. And the following week, we went to see a uh, pianist called Riopi. I've had Riopi on on this podcast. He's an amazing. Oh, man. fantastic! Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's amazing. And actually, went to uh, Oxford as well. Right. So he um, he was uh, he did music here. Mm. I'd seen Fiddler and then Riopi literally in the same week, and it it couldn't be sort of more different styles. It was no. such a wonderful sort of th- wonderful sort of thing. But the Fiddler gig is just something completely out of this world. It's almost like it's a mixture of going to a club, going to the gym because it's a proper workout as well. Um, but just a huge sort of endorphin <laughs> thing too. So. And you're right, you absolutely cannot capture that on a recording. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the live experience more than anything. Because I think sometimes the studio albums all kind of craft and things, but, mm. uh, you know, it was one of the times I just remember being, oh my goodness, this is nothing like I remember even hearing it, you know. And you can pick out songs mm-hmm. that you know are going to be, wow, this is going to be great live. So, <laughs> so it was great. Yeah, fuck it, dog, life's a risk. That's great. Well, let's find out what the other one is. And I don't care. So I'm happy to break rules. I'll give you one extra. <laughs> oh, who's this guy coming up with five good things he wants to put in his time capsule? He's had too much of a good time. His life has been so full. Yeah. <laughs> so this is more of a moment. And I think this is a moment that I'd like to think a lot of people have experienced. It's a cricket bag. I want to put a cricket bag in a time capsule. Mm-hmm. And, and what happened was I was on the bus. I was going to school. And my parents had bought me some cricket gear that I needed to play in this match. And I was at the bus stop and I was mucking around as you usually do. And I get on the bus and it's about 25 minutes into the ride. I look around, I'm like, where's this bag of cricket stuff? And I haven't got it. And I must have left it at the bus stop. Now, this is the time, obviously, there wasn't mobile phones around. So this huge wave of panic kicked in because, you know, They'd spent this money and I'd lost it. Where was it going to go and things like that? So I actually got off the bus and I walked all the way back because I didn't have money to get on another bus. So I walked all the way back to the bus stop. And at that bus stop where I'd left the cricket bag, the cricket bag wasn't there. It'd gone. Oh, no. So now I'm seriously panicking. I'm like, what on earth am I going to do? And so I get the next bus. Um, we had a bit of change, mm. enough for us to get on a bus to go back in. Yeah. It was our dinner money, basically. So we got back in. We went all the way to the bus station and I went to the lost property. I mean, this sounds such a different era, doesn't it? I went <laughs> yes, to the lost quite. property at the bus station and there someone had seen it, picked it up, taken it in and dropped it there. And it was that moment of, oh my gosh, someone has done something so amazing for me that they have no idea how that has impacted me as a school kid. Yeah. And it was, it's, I think it's something that we still have today, but obviously we've got technology and we have ways of finding things or registering lost and found. There's almost some safety nets. Mm. So it was, it was a moment in time where that bag was gone. You know, that, that piece of you, something I had a, a complete disappeared, but someone had been so kind and I would never meet that person. I'll never know. No. Oh, the chances are it's a sequence of people. It really is when they say the kindness of strangers, it may have passed through several hands, yeah. but all of them, have been trusted to look after it because they know that it's someone else's and the, to them it's precious. Yeah. And you also just have no idea the impact that has on other no. on someone else. I did have one experience of the impact and I, I I guess this made me think about it in terms of, you know, what happened to me, but also didn't realise the impact it had on someone else. I was, again, a bus, uh, <laughs> uh, regular on the buses. I was on the <laughs> bus and I found a mobile phone. Now, this is uh, mobile phones before uh, iPhones. Again, mm. I was still like a kid. And I got off and I went to a police station and handed it in because they were at that stage where I like, well, I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. And obviously they take your name and number and stuff like that. So I remember my mum saying, you've got a telephone call. And I called, and it was the mother of someone who'd, uh, whose phone it was. 
Yes. And they'd obviously bought it as a present. They just said, just so grateful that I, you know, handed it in and said, just wanted to say thank you. Mm. And I think that's the thing is that it's such a small thing that you can do or someone does to see something that someone's left and the amount of distress the other person is in. That small act of someone doing something like that has such huge impact on someone else, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, which is such a beautiful thing to do and realise as well. You know, my goodness, that person who picked up that cricket bag went all the way to the bus station just to hand it in. And, you know, what a great thing it was. And so, and it's, like I said, it's beautiful because it's something that is still today we can experience despite all the technology and things Mm -hmm. we've got. It was, yeah, it was just a a moment that you realise that really the kindness of strangers and the impact that can have. Yes. And it does happen all the time. That's the wonderful thing about it. When it doesn't happen, that's when you're surprised. Oh, gosh, yeah. So uh, one thing that you want to get rid of, that's all we have left. So one thing that I would put in, and I'm afraid I have to bury, and it's a poison chalice in more than one way, is oysters. Oysters have been responsible for one of the greatest memories I've had and also several of the not-so-greatest memories <laughs> I've had. And, you know, it started off, it might have been, you know, Borough Market? Mm-hmm. I think it was there. Like, there's a place that sold oysters, like, and they looked amazing. I was like, oh, well, let's have it. And, and I remember just eating one in the market, and I was like, wow, this is... This is crazy. This is great. So what happened was uh, when I was younger, I went away with my brother to uh, New York for uh, a trip. And mm-hmm. he took me to a place, one of his favorite places, which is called Balthazar. Mm-hmm. I said, what's it like? He said, it's basically a Parisian bistro without the Parisians. Is what he <laughs> described it as. <laughs> I was like, okay. So you go in and he said, you've got to sit at the bar. And we sat at this bar and it was like the most indulgent I think I've ever felt ever. We sat at this bar and you ordered some oysters that come on the big ice tray mm. and have some wine. And then everyone's chatty in New York. It's not like it, it was, you know, everyone wants to talk to you. You just kept chatting. So we spent hours just chatting to people around us. And it was all just, you know, really sort of sociable, fun experience. So, so I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And then uh, I had to, an oyster when I was away it was something from medicine. It was a medical elective where I was looking in uh, into ski and snowboard sports injuries as part of a, a project. And I was in uh, Montana first, and then we went somewhere else in San Francisco. And I had an oyster there, and I thought I'd been poisoned by some secret agents. And I was thoroughly unwell, like oh. thoroughly. Now, apparently there's something about norovirus being in oysters, and it's all a bit of a potluck sort of thing depending on how much of the virus is in there or within it. So, you know, you might get ill or not. But anyway, there's also the theory that you might develop an allergy or intolerance to shellfish. And mm-hmm. I remember I was away with a friend and we were late getting to this hotel. We were in Scotland. And on our way there, we called up and just said, can we get some food? Because uh, we're going to arrive quite late. And they said, yeah, you want to order now because we're going to shut the kitchen. Mm. <laughs> For some reason, they just had a special, they had oysters on the menu uh, the starter and so we thought all oh, right we'll both have some oysters and then a burger because that seems like a natural sort of <laughs> combination surf and turf yeah yeah exactly so we say so okay we'll, we'll go for that and um everything was great we went to bed about an hour and a half afterwards and then just something started happening in the bedroom i just felt like beads of sweat coming down oh, my forehead God. And I suddenly started to feel more and more nauseous. And I just thought, oh, maybe it's just, you know, it's just all the travelling. And then it became apparent it wasn't the travelling. And then I had to go in. And, you know, my poor friend didn't witness, but audibly witnessed the changing of a man in that room. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes your body puts strains on you, whether, you know, if you're going to be sick or otherwise. And if you've only got one toilet 
and both ends of your body are requiring it, mm-hmm. you have to make an informed decision. Oh. Uh, and I have to say that it was one of the most, the, the words when <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> once everything had died down, um, there were some <laughs> words came from the bedroom and said, are you okay? And I said, yes, but I've got some bad news. And he said, what is it? And I said, I think you're going to need a new toothbrush. So, <laughs> so oysters, I'm yet to try because that, that, that was the last two times I tried it don't, years ago. Don't, I cannot understand. If you said to someone, there's this food, which you may find delicious, but usually that's because it's got lemon or some chilli on it. And yet having this quite delicious food might mean you spend 12 hours lying on the floor of a bathroom vomiting and shitting <laughs> you sort of go i won't bother then so i'm quite happy to put oysters into the time capsule for you and maybe keep you away from them because i think it's a bad decision one day i think when if i've got like a safe space you know if, 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 if i've got you know working hygiene facilities i'm on my own and i'm wearing swimming trunks or something you know surrounded by doctors yes exactly <laughs> Oh, Ed, how fantastic. Thank you very much. It was really lovely to hear the six things you want to put into a time capsule. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. No, you're welcome. And thanks for letting me cram another one in there. (laughs) That's all right. Have fun with the tour. Will do. Thank you. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Ed Patrick. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can listen to this podcast without ads if you follow the link in the description of this podcast and subscribe to Acast Plus, where you also get a bonus episode every week. Woo! Yeah, don't get too excited. It's just me and my producer slash son, or I'd never slash my son, talking about the making of the podcast and anything else that occurs. Do join us if you can. If you subscribe to this podcast, of course, we'll send you every episode as they become available. And of course, as every podcast says, please do rate or review us if you have the chance. Just click on five stars or write something effusive. The theme tune is available to download or stream on Spotify. It was written and performed by Pass the Peas Music, and I'm sure sure you know that this is a cast-off production for Acast, produced by the aforementioned slash son, John Fenton-Stevens. Well, this is an opportunity, isn't it? To have a doctor on a podcast that always ends with a joke? Haha, <laughs> let's go through some of my favourites. Doctor, I'm wrapping my genitals in cling film. Yes, I can clearly see your nuts. Doctor, I keep thinking I'm a pair of curtains. Well, pull yourself together. Doctor, I think I'm a dog. Then get off the sofa. But my favourite is not necessarily the funniest, but it kept me and my relatives laughing for a ridiculously long time many years ago. We'd all just come back from a very long evening in the pub, in fact, and the man who told the joke was brilliant at laughing the joke in. A bit like Barry Cryer. So here goes. A man goes to the doctor and says, Doctor, I just can't stop farting. And the doctor says, Right, can you pass me that very long, very heavy pole? The man looks worried and says, well, What are you going to do with that? And the doctor says, I'm going to open the window. Oh, come on, we were drunk. Bye. Bye.